Section 7 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, John Smith, Foundations of a Christian Philosophy, Part 2. It is the highest testimony to the genius of the author that the estimate of his friends is found fully sustained by these discourses. Written so long ago, and marked, like all the writings of the time, with many unaccustomed forms of language, they are yet instinct with a free, bright, and copious life of thought, which runs as freshly, or nearly as freshly, as it did to his contemporaries. The expression of Worthington, that his mind was a bountiful and ever-bubbling fountain, is exactly the expression suggested by their full, rich, and plentiful thoughtfulness. It is not mere eloquence and ability, the easy and large grasp of intellect, as in Chillingworth or Barrow or Cudworth, which distinguish them but an ineffable light of spiritual genius shines in them all. They are clothed, as the Chaldee oracle quoted by Patrick says, with a great deal of mind, and deeply impregnated with divine notions. Powerful and massive in argument, they are everywhere informed by a divine insight which transcends argument. Calmly and closely reasoned, they are at the same time inspired. The breath of a higher diviner reason animates them all. The force of a logic nearly as direct and penetrating as that of Chillingworth directs an imagination as opulent as Jeremy Taylor's. The result is a delightful admixture of Christian philosophy and poetry. Profound glimpses of spiritual truth everywhere open to the reader as he advances, charmed with the rich unfoldings of an exuberant intelligence, rejoicing in the amplitude of its powers and the sweep and glory of its flight. The poetic richness of the style, seldom or never, as with Taylor, overbalances the weight of the thought. It is ornate and picturesque, without being florid or tawdry. It is living, even through all the trappings and encumbrances of neoplatonical or other allusion. The rhetorical and rational, the imaginative and spiritual, are fused and blended into a common intellectual action, which enlightens while it penetrates, and touches with beauty and color the eminences of truth which it reveals. The main drawback of the discourses to the modern reader is the incessant recurrence of quotations. The free course of the author's thought is constantly interrupted by confirmatory statements and illustrations from the treasures of ancient opinion, and sometimes, indeed, as in the third discourse on atheism, his line of exposition runs almost entirely along an ancient track. The effect is now and then to give an additional richness and interest to the exposition, but more frequently to mar its flow and originality. The native texture of the author's composition is here and there so overlaid and patched that it is barely distinguishable. It is like a rich garment covered with richer gems, which, while they give a new wealth to the original, yet hide its natural hue and folds. To the scholar and antiquarian student there is a special charm in this literary mosaic. They like the page studded with Greek and Latin quotations, and the reverent caution which seeks to fortify its steps as it advances by sentences from the ancient masters, which carries the spolia opima of past thought with it as it ventures into new regions of inquiry. But our more direct habits of mind have made us impatient of such traditional ornaments of literature. The modern reader wishes to know what a man thinks himself, or has got to say for himself, rather than what Plato or Plutarch or Plotinus or Tully or Lucretius may have said ages ago. 
there is no indisposition to listen to these ancient sages on the contrary it may be said that there never was a time when any critical exposition of them was likely to be received with more interest or appreciation but it is no longer accepted as a part of literary art to be able to weave their sayings into the texture of a theological or philosophical treatise and still less is it supposed that any modern writer necessarily adds to the weight of his own opinions by fixing them with even the most ingenious and pregnant quotations from ancient authorities. The Cambridge Platonists carried the system of quotation to great excess. It was not merely a feature of their style, but a characteristic, so to speak, of their mode of thought. They lent too fondly on the past, and made too much of ancient wisdom. They were never able to throw off the weight of Neoplatonic tradition, or to rise superior to what appeared to them a sacred lore. The shadow of Plotinus haunts their highest conceptions, and they escape too seldom into the clear daylight, the open heaven of speculation. Smith is, perhaps, less an offender in this respect than Cudworth and Moore. Whichcote, in his sermons, offends least of all. He moves with a comparatively free and unembarrassed step. He had been more in the world than the others, and, as he himself tells us, owed less to reading than to his own thought and invention. All the younger men of the school were more exclusively scholars and students. They gathered their thought more entirely from books, and, like all men who do so, they bear the trace of the library dust. They like to show the rare treasure dug from the ancient quarries in which they have worked with so much love and interest. The discourses are ten in all. The first six are closely connected, and form, in fact, successive parts of a scheme of thought designed by the author in vindication of the main heads and principles of religion. Starting with the important question of the true way or method of obtaining divine knowledge, he passes, after the polemical manner of the time, to discuss first the counterfeits or oppositions to divine knowledge in the forms of superstition and of atheism. He then enumerates the main principles or articles of religious truth to be, one, the immortality of the soul, two, the existence and nature of God, and three, the communication of God to mankind through Christ. He considers the first two subjects somewhat elaborately in successive discourses, but he did not live to enter upon the special treatment of the third. The discourse of prophecy, which is the last of the connected series, was meant merely to be an introduction to this part of his subject. But so many inquiries offered themselves to his thoughts in discoursing upon prophecy that he had only finished this topic when his term of office as dean and catechist in the college expired. He died in the following summer, and thus, says Worthington, quote, he who designed to speak of God's communication of himself to mankind through Christ was taken up by God into a more inward and immediate participation of himself in blessedness. Had he lived, and had health to have finished the remaining part of his designed method, the reader may easily conceive what a valuable piece that discourse would have been. Close quote. Yet, he adds, that the reader, quote, may not altogether want the author's labors upon such an argument, I thought good in the next place to adjoin a discourse of the like importance and nature delivered heretofore by the author in some chapel exercises. Close quote. In point of fact, there are four discourses appended to that upon prophecy. The volume, therefore, consists of two parts, the first part representing, in some degree, a connected treatise, and the second composed of such additional discourses as seemed to Worthington so far fitted to carry out the author's design, and to illustrate the special principles which he had intended to unfold in the sequel. In expounding our author's religious philosophy, we shall follow his own outline of thought. 
the same ideas recur frequently and the necessities of his argument and strict sequence of its various parts are not very carefully preserved footnote the following are the special titles of the several discourses in the order in which they stand one of the true way or method of attaining to divine knowledge two of atheism three of superstition four of the immortality of the soul five of the existence and nature of god six of prophecy seven of legal and evangelical righteousness eight of the shortness of pharisaical righteousness nine of the excellency and nobleness of true religion ten of a christian's conflicts with and conquests over satan End of footnote. the following may be said to be the particulars to which our attention is invited in succession one method of attaining divine knowledge two opposites of the divine superstition and atheism three main principles of the divine immortality god revelation four and finally the true character of the divine revealed in christ on all these points the discourses throw some true and for the time original light none of them is more significant or deserves more attention than the first which unfolds in a manner the whole line of smith's thought one this discourse of the true way or method of attaining to divine knowledge is in some respects the finest of the series it gives as we have said nearly the keynote of all his system of thought as indeed to know the method of any thinker is more or less to know the substance of his thought or the conclusions which he will reach are we to begin from without or from within are we to start with the senses or the soul and advance along the line of sensation or the line of reason the alternative is as old as philosophy itself accordingly as it takes the one path or the other the subjective or the objective method it falls into two great sections and sets up rival theories to say that smith was a platonist is enough to settle the general character of his method all knowledge to him especially all higher divine knowledge springs from the soul within it is the reflection of our own souls the interpretation of our own spiritual life this will be found to be the pervading thought of the discourses the central principle to which they all lead back in its general philosophical aspect this is known as the old doctrine of innate notions which smith accepted without hesitation this may be inferred from many of his expressions but it is not in its general meaning so much as in its special theological application that he makes use of the principle the kind of knowledge which he has everywhere in view is divine knowledge the knowledge of god and of a sphere of truth beyond that of sensible experience the idea that there may be no such knowledge at all that the sphere of sensible experience exhausts the circle of knowledge an idea now so familiar is not polemically present to his mind there is no trace of hobbes in any of the discourses the leviathan was in fact only published the year before smith's death and if he knew it at all he makes no allusion to it there is none of that consciousness of a living presence of atheistic speculation or an antagonistic system of corporealism which meets us everywhere in the pages of cudworth and more the atheism which he describes is the atheism of epicurus and lucretius without any hint of its revival in his own day accordingly smith does not think it necessary to vindicate the general philosophic basis on which he stands he takes that more or less for granted and sets out confidently on the spiritual foundation from which all his thought rises the beginning of divine truth is a vital sense or faculty within us which lays hold of its appropriate objects every art and science he says quote, 
must start from certain precognita, and theology involves in its very nature the supposition of a power within us answering to, and apprehensive of, a power above us. This power or faculty must be vital, of the nature of a higher sense. For divinity, he explains, is something rather to be understood by a spiritual sensation than by any verbal description, as all things of sense and life are best known by sentient and vital faculties. As the Greek philosopher hath well observed, everything is best known by that which bears a just resemblance and analogy with it. And therefore the scripture is wont to set forth a good life as the prolepsis and fundamental principle of divine science. Wisdom hath builded her house and hewn out her seven pillars. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the foundation of the whole fabric. They are not always the best skilled in divinity that are the most studied in those pandects into which it is sometimes digested, or that have erected the greatest monopolies of art and science. He that is most practical in divine things hath the purest and sincerest knowledge of them, and not he that is most dogmatical. Divinity, indeed, is a true efflux from the eternal light, which, like the sunbeams, does not only enlighten, but heat and enliven, and therefore our Saviour hath in his Beatitudes connected purity of heart with the beatifical vision. And, as the eye cannot behold the sun unless it be sun-like, and hath the form and resemblance of the sun drawn in it, so neither can the soul of man behold God unless it be godlike, hath God formed in it, and be made partaker of the divine nature. And the Apostle St. Paul, when he would lay open the right way of attaining to divine truth, saith that knowledge puffeth up, but it is love that edifieth. The knowledge of divinity that appears in systems and models is but a poor wan light, but the powerful energy of divine knowledge displays itself in purified souls. Here we shall find the true, as the ancient philosophy speaks, the land of truth. To seek our divinity merely in books and writings is to seek the living among the dead. We do but in vain seek God many times in these, where his truth too often is not so much enshrined as entombed. No, intra tequere deum, seek for God within thine own soul. He is best discerned, as Plotinus phraseth it, by an intellectual touch of him. We must see with our eyes, and hear with our ears, and our hands must handle the word of life, that I may express it in St. John's words. The soul itself hath its sense, as well as the body, and therefore David, when he would teach us how to know what the divine goodness is, calls not for speculation, but sensation. Taste and see how good the Lord is. That is not the best and truest knowledge of God, which is wrought out by the labor and sweat of the brain, but that which is kindled within us by a heavenly warmth in our hearts. It is but a thin, airy knowledge that is got by mere speculation, which is ushered in by syllogisms and demonstrations. But that which springs forth from true goodness is, as Origen speaks, it brings such a divine light into the soul as is more clear and convincing than any demonstration. The reason why, notwithstanding all our acute reasons and subtle disputes, truth prevails no more in the world, is, we so often disjoin truth and true goodness, which in themselves can never be disunited. They grow both from the same root, and live in one another. We may, like those in Plato's deep pit, with their faces bended downwards, converse with sounds and shadows, but not with the life and substance of truth, while our souls remain defiled with any vice or lusts. Quote. Again, quote, Such as men themselves are, such will God himself seem to be. It is the maxim of most wicked men that the deity is some way or other like themselves. Their souls do more than whisper it, though their lips speak it not, and though their tongues be silent, yet their lives cry it upon the housetops and in the public streets. 
that idea which men generally have of god is nothing else but the picture of their own complexion that archetypal notion of him which hath the supremacy in their minds is none else but such a one as hath been shaped out according to some pattern of themselves though they may so clothe and disguise this idol of their own when they carry it about in a pompous procession to expose it to the view of the world that it may seem very beautiful and indeed anything else rather than what it is jejune and barren speculations may be hovering and fluttering up and down about divinity but they cannot settle or fix themselves upon it they unfold the plicatures of truth's garment but they cannot behold the lovely face of it there are hidden mysteries in divine truth wrapped up one within another which cannot be discerned but only by divine epoptists we must not think we have then attained to the right knowledge of truth when we have broken through the outward shell of words and phrases that house it up or when by a logical analysis we have found out the dependencies and coherences of them one with another or when like stout champions of it having well guarded it with the invincible strength of our demonstration we dare stand out in the face of the world and challenge the field of all those that would pretend to be our rivals we have many brave and reverend idolaters that worship truth only in the image of their own wits that could never adore it so much as they may seem to do were it anything else but such a form of belief as their own wandering speculations had at last met together in were it not that they find their own image and superscription upon it there is a knowing of the truth as it is in jesus as it is in a christ-like nature as it is in that sweet mild humble and loving spirit of jesus which spreads itself like a morning sun upon the souls of good men full of light and life Close quote. still again in the same vein quote, divine truth is better understood as it unfolds itself in the purity of men's hearts and lives than in all those subtle niceties into which curious wits may lay it forth and therefore our saviour who is the great master of it would not while he was here on earth draw it up into any system or body nor would his disciples after him he would not lay it out to us in any canons or articles of belief not being indeed so careful to stock and enrich the world with opinions and notions as with true piety and a godlike pattern of purity as the best way to thrive in all spiritual understanding his main scope was to promote a holy life as the best and most compendious way to a right belief he hangs all true acquaintance with divinity upon the doing god's will if any man do his will he shall know of the doctrine whether it be of god Close quote. then returning to his original thought from which indeed he has never escaped he once more sums it up in a definite sentence with the help of plotinus quote, divinity is not so well perceived by a subtle wit as by a purified sense as plotinus phraseth it Close quote. the ancients he says were not unacquainted with this method of attaining to the knowledge of divine things aristotle thought young men with their youthful affections as yet uncooled unfit to enter upon ethical studies pythagoras tested the sedateness and moral temper of his scholars quote, before he would entrust them with the sublimer mysteries of his philosophy the platonists were herein so wary and solicitous that they thought the minds of men could never be purged enough from those earthly dregs of sense and passion in which they were so much steeped before they could be capable of their divine metaphysics and therefore they so much solicit a separation from the body in all those that would sincerely understand divine truth for that was the scope of their philosophy quote. as the attainment of divine truth involves a moral culture we should seek it without dogmatism neither committing ourselves to others opinions nor too zealously opposing them quote, 
we should not like rigid censurers arraign and condemn the creeds of other men which we comply not with before a full and mature understanding of them ripened not only by the natural sagacity of our own reason but by the benign influence of holy and mortified affection so neither should we over hastily subscribe to the symbols and articles of other men they are not always the best men that blot most paper a bitter juice of corrupt affections may sometimes be strained into the ink of our greatest scholars their doctrines may taste too sour of the cask they came through we are not always happy in meeting with that wholesome food as some are wont to call the doctrinal part of religion which hath been dressed out by the cleanest hands some men have too bad hearts to have good heads they cannot be good at theory who have been so bad at the practice as we may justly fear too many of those from whom we are too apt to take the articles of our belief have been whilst we plead so much our right to the patrimony of our fathers we may take too fast a possession of their errors as well as of their sober opinions there are idola specus innate prejudices and deceitful hypotheses that many times wander up and down in the minds of good men that may fly out from them with their graver determinations we can never be well assured what our traditional divinity is nor can we securely enough addict ourselves to any sect of men that which was the philosopher's motto we may a little enlarge and so fit it for an ingenious pursuer after divine truth he that will find truth must seek it with a free judgment and a sanctified mind he that thus seeks shall find he shall live in truth and that shall live in him it shall be like a stream of living waters issuing out of his own soul he shall drink of the waters of his own cistern and be satisfied he shall every morning find this heavenly manna lying upon the top of his own soul and be fed with it to eternal life he will find satisfaction within feeling himself in conjunction with truth though all the world should dispute against him divine truth is therefore the analogue of the divine spirit in man it is to be sought neither in books nor traditions of any kind but in the light in which the pure soul looks forth upon reality the science of the divine originates in a divine intuition which guarantees its own contents of the nature of a sense this intuition is yet rational in the highest degree it is the light of all our seeing it is the spiritual eye with which we look out upon the spiritual world and by the culture and enlargement of which we see always more clearly the great objects of faith and hope and love there is nothing imaginary in the truths thus made known to us Quote, the common notions of god and virtue impressed upon the souls of men are more clear and perspicuous than any else and if they have not more certainty yet have they more evidence and display themselves with less difficulty to our reflective faculty than any geometrical demonstrations and these are both available to prescribe out ways of virtue to men's own souls and to force an acknowledgment of truth from those that oppose when they are well guided by a skilful hand truth needs not at any time fly from reason there being an eternal amity between them they are only some private dogmas that may well be suspected as spurious and adulterate that dare not abide the trial thereof we must open the eye of the soul which indeed all have but few make use of this is the way to see clearly the light of the divine world will then begin to fall upon us and those sacred elampses those pure coruscations of immortal and ever-living truth will shine into us and in god's own light shall we behold him Close quote. he describes in conclusion the various degrees in which in different orders of men this spiritual faculty is cultivated there is first of all what he calls the complex and multifarious man 
in whom sense and reason are so intermixed and twisted up together that his knowledge cannot be laid out into its first principles and so he becomes the victim of custom and vulgar opinion in such a man the higher notions of god and religion are quote, so entangled with the birdlime of fleshly passions and mundane vanity that he cannot rise to any but earthly conception of heavenly things Close quote. such souls as plato says quote, are heavy behind and are continually pressing down to this world's centre and though like the spider they may appear sometime moving up and down aloft in the air yet they do but sit in the loom and move in that web of their own gross fancies which they fasten and pin to some earthly thing or other there is secondly the rationalist or the man who quote, thinks not fit to view his own face in any other glass but that of reason and understanding in such a one the communes noticiae or common principles of virtue and goodness are more clear and steady close quote. but being unfed and unfilled with the practice of true virtue they may be but poor empty and hungry things of themselves thirdly there is the mystic who has an quote, inward sense of virtue and moral goodness far transcendent to all mere speculative opinions but whose soul is apt too much to heave and swell with the sense of his own virtue and knowledge an ill ferment of self-love lying at the bottom close quote, frequently puffs up such a soul with pride arrogance and self-conceit lastly there is quote, the true metaphysical and contemplative man who running and shooting up above his own logical or self-rational life pierceth into the highest life such a one by universal love and holy affection abstracting himself from himself endeavors the nearest union with the divine essence that may be knitting his own centre into the centre of divine being to such a one the platonists are wont to attribute a true divine wisdom powerfully displaying itself in an intellectual life as they phrase it such a knowledge they say is always pregnant with divine virtue which ariseth out of a happy union of souls with god and is nothing else but a living imitation of a godlike perfection drawn out by a strong fervent love of it this divine knowledge as plotinus says makes us amorous of divine beauty beautiful and lovely and this divine love and purity reciprocally exalts divine knowledge such a life and knowledge as this is peculiarly belongs to the true and sober christian who lives in him who is life itself and is enlightened by him who is the truth itself and is made partaker of the divine unction and knoweth all things as st john speaks this life is nothing else but god's own breath within him and an infant christ if i may use the expression formed in his soul Close quote. end of chapter three part two